Have you ever been embarrassed by God? I'm not talking about the embarrassment that comes with the conviction of sin. Certainly as we consider God's law and we consider ourselves, there's a certain amount of embarrassment and shame that comes with looking at our own behavior. I'm talking about looking at how God acts. Have you, have you ever looked at how God acts in the world and been scandalized, been a little bit embarrassed? Earlier this week, we heard news once again of an act of violence in our schools. This one broke through a lot of the callousness that we've probably developed of hearing these stories over and over again is it it did hit closer to home in a lot of ways. We think about a, a grade school, a Christian grade school in, in Nashville associated with a Presbyterian congregation, one that we would share pulpit and table fellowship with. I know for me, hearing about this minister who, who lost his young daughter in this act of violence on Monday. It really did hit close to home. And as many questions as an event like this brings to mind, I think there's a couple things that we can say for certain. One, these acts of violence seem completely senseless and evil. And we can say that Jesus is king of all. And if you think about it, those two realities together are almost too much to bear. I mean, if Jesus really is ruling and reigning over all things from sea to sea, why does he seem so uninterested in fixing things? Doesn't take much to look around and see that our world is indeed broken, that there is no security or safety to be found in this life. Well, if you're hoping for some clear answers this morning, um, we're continuing our series on Converse Christianity. So I'll say up front, I, I don't have clear answers to things like this, but you're probably used to that by now. It is interesting, though, that as we continue this series on Converse Christianity, that this series and the church calendar uh, providentially converge for us in Holy Week, a week that perhaps more than any other week in the Bible or in history, we see this reality that God works in ways that we don't understand, that he works in upside-down ways. Particularly this morning, we come to the triumphal entry of Jesus where, this, where there's an announcement that Jesus is king. And yet very soon we start encountering a growing sense that this king is not going to rule in the ways that we want him to. And his own audience would find that out too is this week of Holy Week we see perhaps one of the most accelerated political downfalls of history. As this crowd that is on this day extolling the son of David will just a few days later call for his crucifixion as they see that 
this king is not at all what they expected him to be. So I want to consider this from several vantage points as we look at Matthew 21 this morning. And first, I want to see that the king is coming. Well, if we consider Jesus' life and ministry throughout the Gospels and up until this point, Jesus seems almost uninterested in attention. He'll heal people, blind men, and when they are so grateful for his healing, he'll say things like, you know, don't tell anyone. As crowds gather, he seems just as interested in hiding as he does in teaching at times, seeking the solace of prayer over celebrity. And yet here in this text, we see a jarring shift for King Jesus. He really does seem to be interested in drawing attention to himself and the reality that he is indeed the promised Messiah. He is the King. Well, in Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus, his disciples, and, and many other followers traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Throngs of worshipers would be headed in the same direction. This is a jubilant time in Israel's calendar. Like, like Easter for us, it marks a decisive event in their history. It has a, a very particular religious potency to it. For the nation of Israel, it had a, a very political potency as well as they look back to the event where Yahweh delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians and began to establish them as a nation state as they head towards Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And so there's a lot of expectations around this celebration. So so as Jesus is making his way with all of these followers to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, we'll notice that this is about a 17-mile journey, and it's not until right outside the city that Jesus needs transportation, which is interesting. Why here and why now? He's been walking along with the crowds about 15 miles, largely uphill, and it's only now that he, he wants to send for a cult. Well, firstly, this location, Bethpage, Bethany, the Mount of Olives, is dripping with Old Testament messianic expectation. If we think back to the book of Ezekiel and Ezekiel's prophecy uh, and vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. We see that the glory of the Lord leaves the temple and stands on this mountain east of the city and looks upon it before departing. Well, it's interesting that here in this text, this is happening in reverse, that the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ is standing on the Mount of Olives, heading back toward the temple. Zechariah's prophecy, which is quoted here, is even more explicit. It says that the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem, this, this very spot where Jesus is calling for this transportation. And that this sign of the Lord standing on the Mount will be a sign that inaugurates this great cleansing that Israel had been expecting for so long a time when their enemies would finally be subdued under the kingship of the Messiah. Israel would finally be established. At this point in history, 
the Romans especially would be done away with. There's a lot of expectancy going on. And so these texts speak of the Messiah riding on a colt. And Matthew wants to emphasize this reality as Jesus seeks to tie himself to these prophetic announcements that we, we read and even sang about this morning. Passages that tell us of the Messianic King finally coming to do away with evil, to do away with injustice. Zechariah tells us that he will cut off the battle bow. He shall speak peace to the nations, that his rule will be from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. And this Messiah riding in on a colt would be a sign that this whole project is being inaugurated. Christ himself in the, the passage that we read together two weeks ago, recognizes that he does indeed have this authority that the prophets spoke about. He says that all authority on heaven and earth from sea to sea has been given to me. And he, he evidences this by saying, I will be with you even to the ends of the earth that in Jesus' earthly ministry, he has indeed received this authority, this kingship. And here on Palm Sunday, this authority is breaking through. Even how he acquires this cult is a sign that he has authority over all things. Go into the village, Jesus says, and you will find a donkey immediately. Loose him and bring him to me. If anyone gives you any trouble, just say that the Lord is in need of it. When the two unnamed disciples find Jesus' royal transportation, a cult that has never been ridden, still with its mother, there just as he said it would be. Say to the daughter of Zion, Matthew quotes, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey. Well, if you feel like this is all still a little bit cryptic, that these are kind of maybe signs, then the crowd here is a lot faster on the uptake than you are because they clearly get it, don't they? They see something very unique is going on. This great crowd that is traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover sees and hears this message loud and clear. We, we see them beginning to take off their cloaks to lay them on a dusty path only for a donkey to walk over them begin cutting down branches, laying them on the road. These all might seem like odd things, but these two are pictures of what it looks like for a king of Israel to come home from a victorious battle. We see this as, as uh, Jehu is anointed king over Israel. We see similar patterns with David and with Solomon. And these worshiping Jews get it just by their very posture and they're taking off of their cloaks. They're laying down of branches. They're, they're saying, yes, we, we get what you're trying to say. This really is the Messiah. And not only that, but they begin to erupt in royal song. Song that we have heard this morning. These psalms would commonly be sung during the Passover festival. 
but now they're being attributed to Jesus. Save us, they sing. Save us to the son of David. From Psalm 118, as we sang this morning, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They see that Jesus is the anointed Messiah. There seems to be very little question in their mind. And Matthew tells us that the whole city is stirred. You can imagine all of these pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for Passover. They all seem to be talking about this. Who is this Jesus? What is he all about? Could this be the time? Could this be the time where there is finally a cleansing, where Israel will finally be established as God's royal people? You might notice here some parallels from how Matthew speaks of Christ's birth. The royal announcement, angelic singing, so to speak, royal songs talking about the son of David and all Jerusalem being stirred up with these questions of could this be the one that we've been waiting for? The other parallel that we see is a swift move from adulation to people wanting to kill Jesus. In the birth account, we find Herod wanting to take care of this threat. And here, very soon, the very people that God has come to save, plotting against the Messiah. So at first we see that the king indeed is coming. Next, we see a king in question. Like the birth announcement of Jesus, we, we, we find some interesting tension, don't we? Yes, the glory of God, but in the form of a child. Yes, the, the birth of the Messiah, but in a manger. Here too, we find Jesus making a royal procession on an animal born for the purpose of carrying a king never ridden before. And yet not a war horse like David rode, but a donkey, a colt, riding in humility. Zechariah tells us this is how it will be, and Matthew quotes it, doesn't he? Telling us that this is a humble king. It's interesting that if you go back just a few short verses, Jesus is teaching his disciples about what greatness in the kingdom looks like. Says the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over the people, but 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 greatness in the kingdom of God looks like servitude. It looks like one who is a slave. And certainly Jesus is, is teaching them a lesson for themselves of how they should act, but he's also setting them up, as he has done time after time, to seeing what salvation in Christ will look like as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. But perhaps what might be most jarring for this worshiping crowd that has been singing to Jesus, laying down their cloaks, is that Jesus does not march into Jerusalem straight for Herod's palace. I mean, that would be the right thing to do, right? If you were taking over the nation, if you were there to defeat the Romans, you would get rid of this half-breed king and you would take 
his palace as your own, but that's not what Jesus does at all. His battle begins in the temple. He goes straight for the center of God's people's religious life. I mean, especially at Passover, you can think of the buzz that would be in the temple during this time. You can imagine the people that have planned for this pilgrimage, planning to see family, perhaps that they haven't seen in some time, preparing for this huge celebration. You can just think of someone showing up to our Easter feast next week and turning over tables of, of lamb and tzatziki and pouring out wine and and announcing in no uncertain terms that everyone who had prepared and anticipated and traveled just needed to go home. That the party is over. And that's what Jesus seems to do here. You'll notice that he, he goes right for the temple and that he begins to overturn tables of money changers and people who sold pigeons. We, we tend to put a lot of weight on these items, but it's interesting that, that money changers were not unlawful in the temple complex, especially for pilgrims that would be traveling in that needed to change out currency in order to give to the temple. Even pigeons were a provision made for those who couldn't afford lambs or travelers who had come from afar that couldn't bring their own sacrifices. Now, it's quite possible that these sellers were marking up their prices during a festival time in order to defraud travelers. But, but, but you'll notice that Jesus isn't just angry at the sellers, is he? Matthew tells us that both those who sold and bought are driven out of the temple And he says that they have made this house, which was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, a den of robbers. This too is a phrase lifted from the prophets that Jeremiah speaks of this as those who have a superstitious worshipers, those who, who break all the laws, those who refuse to conform to Torah and yet show up in the temple caring nothing for God caring nothing for his glory, caring nothing for his commandments, and assume that their vain worship will save them. Another way to translate this word robbers is, is nationalist rebel, and perhaps this could be more fitting here. People that assume that their national heritage will bring about their salvation, all while ignoring God's law and his call to come to him with our hearts and not merely sacrifice. After kicking out all of these worshipers, Jesus welcomes the blind and lame. We're used to Jesus doing things like this, but, but here we should slow down. At this, at this point in history, most priests and most uh, would, would forbid the blind and the lame for coming into the temple complex. They, they were considered to be unclean. Their, their blindness and their lameness was, was shown to be a sign of sin. You'll recall the disciples asking Jesus when they come across this blind beggar, is it, is it the sin of this man or the sin of his parents? It, why, why is he blind? Who is to 
who is to blame? Well, that was the national, that was the general feeling at this point in time, that if someone was lame, someone was blind, they were sinful, they were unclean. Jesus kicks out all the right people and invites all the wrong ones. He seems to upend all that the Jews wanted the Messiah to establish. And he does it at the worst possible time. During this great Passover celebration, Jesus here really is a buzzkill. He seems to want to end the party before it's even begun. It even seems from Matthew's account that the crowds have, have stopped their song except for the kids who just kept on singing. Leave it to children to not get the cue that things are wrong. Or perhaps Jesus was welcoming them as well, which also had offense. You can tell the offenses here because the text tells us that the religious leaders who saw all the wonderful things that Jesus was, do, was doing are indignant. This is their big event. And some carpenter from Nazareth is ruining the whole thing. And in a matter of days, this crowd that has sung out, crown him, crown him, will shift their refrain to crucify him, crucify him. Because they could not get on board with how Jesus seemed to rule, how Jesus seemed to bring about his kingdom. He seems to come and attack the very things that they find security in. Instead of catering to national power, he he condescends to the weak. Instead of marching to Herod's palace and taking the crown that is rightfully is, he seems to be on a crash course for destruction. And as we find in the coming days, he's on a crash course indeed to his own destruction. As he will be arrested, tried, convicted, and crucified. As this, much of this worshiping community will look on it and celebration. Even his disciples, as the week progresses, will be embarrassed by Christ's mixed up priorities and his seeming display of weakness. One of his closest disciples will say, I, I, I never knew him. Just hours leading up to Christ's crucifixion. Have you ever been embarrassed by King Jesus? Have you ever been scandalized by how he rules? When we look at the world around us, we don't need news reports, do we, to see that the world is broken. We can look at our own families, our own relationships, and wonder why isn't Jesus fixing things? Well, I would argue, as we have been arguing for the last weeks in this series in Converse Christianity, that God, as Luther says, so often works in the opposites. And I want to consider that 
for a moment this morning in a converse kingship. This idea that God works in ways that seem opposite are so clear from Holy Week. We have the advantage, though, of, of, of seeing the plan, right? We can look at these events and they make sense to us. Why is that? Because 2,000 years later, we have the benefit of looking at Holy Week in reverse. We can look at it through the lens of the resurrection. We can see that victory is indeed coming. We have the ability to see the things that this crowd could not see, that the disciples should have been able to see, but, but could not because we can look at the whole situation through the lens of Christ's victorious resurrection. We know that Sunday is coming. And with Sunday comes victory. We can look at all these strange events. We can look at Christ's seeming mix-up of priorities. We can see the weakness that has displayed as he approaches the cross. And we can call it good. Because we can see that God is doing good work on our behalf for our salvation. What is far more difficult to grasp is the reality that Jesus continues to rule this way. That he reigns in converse and crucified, cruciformed ways. That he is so often the king that we would not expect, and he rules in ways that we would not choose. He seems constantly uninterested in bolstering the things that we find security in. In fact, he seems that at times he attacks those very things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks about Christ's kingship and how he executes his office of king. And, and it tells us about how he conquers his and our enemies. But, but before that, it tells us that in executing his kingship, he subdues and conquers us. That's the first thing that he comes to do. He comes to conquer our hearts, revealing to us all the things that our hearts are drawn to that will not give us security. He attacks the false temples that we have erected, flipping the tables set with worldly securities and driving out every semblance of control that we want to hang on to. And boy, is it painful. Isn't it a difficult process? There's this uh, great scene in an otherwise irreverent film called Bruce Almighty. Uh, perhaps you've seen it, where the God character uh, played by Morgan Freeman hands over the reins of, of universal kingship to Bruce played by, by Jim Carrey. And, and, and Jim Carrey figures he, he can really set the world straight. And he does so by just giving everyone anything they want as they, they pray. And this seems like a good time for a short while until all havoc on earth begins to break loose. And Bruce at his wits end goes to God crying out, they are out of control. I don't get it. 
There are just so many of them. I just gave them all they wanted. To which Morgan Freeman's character responds, yeah, but since when does anyone have a clue about what they want? King Jesus often gives us precisely the opposite of what we think we want. And that too is good. That too is right. Interestingly enough, uh, the actual Jim Carrey in a recent interview uh, says this. He says, ultimately, I believe that suffering leads to salvation. We have to somehow accept and not deny, but feel our suffering. And then we make one of two decisions. We either decide to go through the gate of resentment, which leads to vengeance, which leads to self-harm, which leads to harm to others, or we go through the gate of forgiveness, which leads to grace, just as Christ Jesus did on the cross. At least in them, this statement, Jim Carrey in a lot of ways of all people really does seem to get how Jesus rules, even now. Subduing our hearts, often in very painful ways that we might walk through the gate of forgiveness and of grace. As one author writes, very often what he is doing is stripping away those things on which you rely, especially your sense of self-control, so that you might learn the painful lesson of being grossly inadequate for this thing called life. He goes on, all it takes is a lump in the breast, a drunk teen behind the wheel, an angry young adult with a gun to bring your little ideal world crashing down all around you. Life is ridiculously fragile, but King Jesus is not. Don't confuse his humility and his restraint with lack of power. For it is in his humility and in his restraint, his, his willingness to work in upside down ways that, that brings about our salvation. Jesus could have come on a war horse with a sword. He could have marched in from the Mount of Olives and destroyed all that is unjust and all that is evil. He could have done that. And which of us would stand? We've seen how God does that in the past, in the days of Noah. That's what God's judgment and power looks like. If you want to see his power, look at the flood. But if you want to see his humility and restraint, that is his very power to save, look at the cross. Jesus does not march from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem on a mighty war horse with a sword, but on a donkey clothed with humility, journeying toward a cross that would remedy all injustice, all evil, all wrongdoing in a way that grants us life. And Jesus continues to bring about true life and salvation through upside down ways. 
As we think about the events of the past week, I, I can't offer a satisfactory explanation for what we've seen on the news, what we see every day in our own lives. But I can tell you this, that just as we are able to see Good Friday as good because we can look at it through the lens of the resurrection, we can look at Holy Week backwards. God in Christ, by his spirit, week after week, calls us to look at our life backwards through the lens of our resurrection, not to trivialize true pain, but because it allows us to remember that our sickness and death cause us to cling to the only one who will ultimately remedy these things. For in him, sin is dead. Death is defeated. And all of his and our enemies will be placed under his feet. And until then, he is still ruling and he is still reigning and his promises are still true to you. So trust him, for he is the one who has the words of eternal life. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. As we walk through this Holy Week together, let us remind that even in the difficulty of this life, he who did not spare his own son will be faithful to preserve us, to give us all that we need to journey from this life into the next. Amen. Let's pray together.